0: Blair Palmer and welcome to the Punks in Suits podcast, bringing the leadership thinking, beliefs, philosophies and practices behind punky, start-uppy, next-stage businesses to you, even if your company's not quite there yet. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Punks in Suits podcast. I am so excited to bring you this week an interview that I've had uh, on my laptop for a few months now actually and the reason that I haven't broadcast it until now is it's long and I was waiting until the right moment and I think that the right moment is now. So the first thing to say about it is it is over an hour. So I would set yourself up with a nice long car journey or train journey or sitting by the beach doing nothing much and really indulge in the conversation that you're about to hear between myself and Lee Feldman. Lee is, well, how do I describe Lee? Uh, He is an entrepreneur. He is a thought leader. He is a guy who has an idea who spots trends and themes, and then really makes things happen on a global scale. In this interview, we start by talking about where it all began for him. His first business, Blast Radius, that he created with some friends while he was still studying at university, and that was really at the forefront of a technological boom, a vanguard, of a new approach to the internet and to website design. We then go on to talk about a leadership program that he participated in that not only changed his life, but the experience itself blew his mind.
1: So we got into wetsuits and we started walking into the North Sea and we just kept walking and walking and walking and the the, the water got deeper and deeper. And at some point, the water was up to our shoulders.
0: In this interview, Lee will share quite a few personal revelations and how a couple of very key personal tragedies opened his mind to what was really important in life, to the crisis facing our planet, and a way that he could really make an impact.
1: They're basically playing nice with the petroleum auto complex and saying, yeah, let's uh, let's work on this together and let's manage this change over the next couple of decades. That's bullshit. That's too late. It's just too late.
0: And as we talk in general terms about the future of business, the future of the economy, how changes in technology are changing our world, we end up in a place of really thinking about what you and I, the listeners of some to, to someone like Lee, can take from what seems to be a special gift his ability to think in different ways and and to draw themes together and come up with something brand new. When
1: you've hit it, when you've really hit it in terms of an idea, then you go hard. Then you go hard. The idea actually starts to drive you. You're no longer having to kind of push it forward, try different things. The idea just takes on a life of its own and then it's moving.
0: So without further ado, I will now hand you over to this really beautiful interview with the amazing Lee Feldman. So I'm really excited to have Lee Feldman joining me today. Hi Lee.
1: Hi, very excited to be here Blair.
0: I'm really excited to talk to you about so many things that you've done in your life, but maybe we can go back to where it all started. Um, And and you can tell us a bit about your background because you started your own, your first business straight out of college. Is that right, Blast Radius? Were you even still at at school at the time?
1: Well, um, I was in school. Um, and I had a couple of people that I was working very deeply with at school uh, who were really passionate about uh, digital technologies. Um, we were all kind of using the campus 24-7, living there, and um, we started to work on each other's projects. So one of my partners uh, at Blast Radius was working on a video game. I was helping him direct some of the video shoots for the video game. Another partner was working on a a training program that was on CD-ROMs. This was, of course, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, and, I, I, you know, I was, I was helping him with some of the sound engineering. Um, and so we were all working on each other's projects, and I kind of looked at this group, and I said, you know, I really think that Digital and specifically internet is going to be huge. This was 95, 96. And um, I, I turned to all of these these folks and I said, we should build an agency. We should build a digital agency. Um, and if we do really well, then the agency is going to take off and grow and we'll get clients and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll conquer the world. And if we don't do well for whatever reason, the skills that we are developing now are going to be needed. I was sure of that. So I went to all of these people, there were uh, at the beginning there were four others, and I explained my idea my vision, and they loved it. And they, uh, they said, okay, you know, we all graduated with a huge amount of student debt. Um, uh, we started working in my apartment, a uh, tiny little space, um, and we just started working together. We, we didn't have a client we just started to do really really interesting stuff we were we were multi really multi-disciplined these people were coming from very very different backgrounds all now wanting to dedicate themselves to this world of sort of digital innovation
0: and it didn't stay in your apartment did it i mean it it you had definitely tapped into something was it a timing thing or was it um was it a talent thing or was there something original about your approach because it got big, right? It went global. Yeah,
1: yeah well, it, we didn't stay in the apartment. There might still be people back there in the apartment, so I'm gonna have to check. But um, <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, it took a couple of years. It wasn't like it popped immediately. So, you know, I, I think we all, we're all all heads down doing small projects, uh, doing a lot of, um, uh, a lot of work for nonprofits, just getting a body of work under our, our belts. And, um, and, and this was going on 96, 97, you know, into 98. Now we're like three years in. We're not making any progress. You know, we're not ha- we don't have any global clients. And we're getting, we're, we're, we're not getting, we're, we're not finished, but we're getting tired. We're like, okay, when is this going to happen? And so there were some breaks, there were some interesting lucky breaks. And the first one was one of our partners had a friend who was a producer at a bigger video game company. Uh, It was a French video game company. And they were doing this new game that was promising to revolutionize video games. And they really needed a, they needed a snazzy, for lack of a better term, they needed a very snazzy website to promote how special their game was gonna be. Uh, and they were going to then use the website as their main marketing channel uh, as they were launching the game. So we pulled out all the stops. We didn't care about bandwidth. You know, We should have cared about bandwidth, we didn't. We said, we're gonna just cram as much visual deliciousness into this promotion as possible. And we're gonna then use it to promote ourselves. So um, this was 98. Uh, right before the, the, the largest video game conference uh, called um, uh, E3. And we pulled out all the stops. We created an inc- visually gorgeous, incredibly rich website to promote this game. And sure enough, as we started to show this website to other video game publishers, they, were, they started to see a little bit of the future. They started to see themselves in this type of uh, channel. And so after E3, we started to get some other requests. And lo and behold, at the end of 99, at the end of 98, we had a meeting lined up with Nintendo of Canada, a very small outpost of Nintendo, yet... Yeah. Uh, the, beginnings Nintendo, of, yeah. exactly, the beginnings of, exactly, the beginnings of a global brand. So and in, in March of 99, we had uh, you know, our first global brand, uh, Nintendo. And then it started to snowball. It really started to go fast. Uh, Casio, uh, the makers of G-Shock, uh, came on board. Uh, Nike came on board. Lego came on board. All in 99. And we, again, for all of them, we pulled out all the stops. We went very, very deep on immersive uh, uh, web interaction uh, uh, experience design. And uh, we won a lot of design awards uh, to a point where we were featured in Communication Arts Magazine. We were winning Clios. We were winning uh, Lions. And all of a sudden we went from nobody, zero, little, you know, group working in the corner of North America to sort of launching on the global stage um, and uh, starting to just, you know, get more and more business, more and more more momentum. Very exciting times. Um, uh, Very difficult to to manage that growth. Uh, However, when you're kind of on that rocket ship going up, You know, you don't care how many hours you're pulling. It doesn't matter. You're just, and and you're really in the zone. You're really, you're really in the flow. You're enjoying every moment of that sort of, you know, meteoric rise to success.
0: So you decided in the midst of that, to move over to Europe, to move to Amsterdam and to help to create uh, Blast Radius, an an outpost there. And, that move, it seems to me, has sort of changed your life.
1: It's changed my life completely, yes. So, you know, I've always been an outsider. I've always, um, even growing up in Montreal, if we go all the way back to my childhood, I was growing up in a tiny little community on the edge of, uh, of, of sort of an English community, which was then part of a larger French community, which was part of a larger English community. So we, we were almost like this Russian, it was like Russian nested dolls. And I, I just felt all the time like I was an outsider, but a very welcomed o- outsider. I, I always felt very welcome. And so I enjoyed that very much. I, I got a lot of, of creative energy and a lot of power from looking at everything from a bit of a distance and from just seeing... Um, uh, seeing inside things in a way that insiders can't see them. And the move to Amsterdam was kind of that next step where I'm leaving the country of my birth. I'm arriving in uh, Europe, which I had never been to. um, And I'm looking around, uh, you know, about to embark on an even more intense growth period of blast radius, growing something from zero really, uh, to, you know, this, 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 this much larger global agency. And um, I, I arrive in Amsterdam and I look around and I'm like, everyone's on bikes. This is the future. This is the future and this is my utopia. This is absolutely the place I want to be. I just felt so immediately attached and drawn to this new sort of urban environment that was very dense, culturally dense very dense with with people i mean you know you you, you know the statistics about the netherlands and, and and you know it applies to Amsterdam, of course and very dense in terms of creative energy you just have continuous serendipitous meetings with people who are in vastly you know different creative um, endeavors whether it's uh, architecture uh, some form of the arts uh, some form of, um, of, of digital creation, startups, and it's all smashed into a very, very small area, which is accessed by bikes. So you're constantly seeing people who are doing interesting things and, um, and, and and always talking about it and always getting these new, weird sort of angles of, uh, of, 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 of new ideas. So that was, for me, it was it was like arriving in a utopia.
0: I want to fast forward the story a bit because you're not with Blast Radius now. So you decided at a certain point to sell that business. And uh, I'm interested in the reasons you decided to sell it, but also, um, you know, you, you could have kind of taken it easy at that point, I imagine, but you threw yourself into the next adventure. So why yeah. why did you decide to to move on from Blast Radius. And and why did you decide to do what you did next?
1: Uh, Well, we we got very fortunate. In our 10th year, the partners met back at the bagel place in in Vancouver that we had basically spent most of our time building the early part of the building. We didn't have enough space in my apartment. So we used this, this little bagel joint around the corner as the boardroom. And we met back at the same table that we always used uh, 10 years later. And we said, all right, what what do we want to do? And um, uh, we were tired. It was 10 years of very, very high growth. Um, And the CEO, uh, one of my closest friends, came back and said, you know, guys, let's 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 really go big. But there's only three ways we can go big. We can either continue growing organically. It's going to take a long time. We could start going on a, a wild acquisition spree, um, and that's going to be highly risky. Or we could get acquired and cash out some of this incredibly hard work. Keep in mind, we weren't paying ourselves top, top, top rate salaries. We were paying our our our, our employees top rate salaries, but we had kept our salaries very, very modest throughout these ten years. So we collectively decided to get acquired and to uh, use that umbrella of a much larger entity to grow further um, fast forward one year later and we were acquired by wpp and that then allowed me to think about okay what's next what 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 else do i love to do what do i want to do and um what format is that going to take you know meanwhile i had uh, uh well, one, we had one child who was uh, you know now five six years old uh we were thinking about having a second child and I knew that I, I I couldn't maintain, and I didn't want to sustain that kind of uh, uh, crazy life of being on planes all the time, uh, being uh, you know uh, staying up all nighters, working on pitches. I knew that uh, that that wasn't sustainable. Um, so I started to um, I started to uh, um, um, look around, uh, and I didn't really see anything that was that was interesting. I didn't see another enterprise um i didn't see anything else that, that really um was was that inspirational however one night i was at a dinner and uh, i was randomly seated next to this uh, older established looking gentleman um and we started talking and he mentioned that he was uh, just starting up a brand new school called think and that you know he had heard my life story similar to what i'm telling you today um, and he said, You know, you should come in and take a look at what we're doing. Maybe you'd be interested. Oh, and by the way, we're, we're looking for one final participant for our, our, our inaugural class. So I walked in the following day. The campus hadn't been built yet, they, they were footing, putting the finishing touches on it. They were working in a small, dusty office upstairs. And I walked in the door. And I saw this other gentleman, who I had known very well from, from Amsterdam, who was sort of, the, um, sort of the poster child for the creative city. And he was also part of this new school. And as soon as I saw him, I said, where do I sign up? I want to be part of this. The school is called FINK, uh, the, uh, the School of Creative Leadership. Uh, there's a campus in uh, Amsterdam, which is where I went to the program. And four or five days into the program, I said, this is great. I've, n- I don't, I've never seen a learning experience like this in my life. I would like to help take this global. So I went back to the two people who had founded it, and I said, folks, I'm going to help you uh, uh, take this global. I'm going to launch the second Think in Vancouver. And that's the journey that I've been on ever since.
0: And what was special about that learning experience? Because most of us, I mean, probably everyone listening to this has done some sort of development. Many of them have done MBAs. Many of them have done leadership development in their organizations. What was it about this learning experience that blew your mind?
1: Well, um, I think what they had done, if I just try to deconstruct it as an experienced designer, you know, for starters, is they had looked at sort of conventions of that space. And they had tried to challenge and reframe a lot of those conventions. Um, And then they, you know, they they applied that mindset to not only the design of the program, but a lot of the stuff that's run through the program as well. So we'll start with uh, kind of the opening weekend. Um, First of all, they didn't tell us very much about what we were signing up for. So already that was interesting. They just gave us a very general outline. And yeah, maybe there was some deeper dive stuff if you really took the time to look and scratch the surface, but you know, they didn't make it easy for you to find the stuff. And quite frankly, I was more interested in immersing myself in the unknown at the time anyway. So for me, it was perfect. You know, they told us to show up at at, at at Central Station in Amsterdam at 6 o'clock in the morning. We got on bus. We didn't know where we were going. They took us to the end of Holland, where the land ends and the water begins. The sky was gray. The water was gray. The land was gray. There was no horizon to even see. And they just pointed in a direction over the water, and they said, we're walking there. And we all kind of looked at it, and we said, well, there's nothing there. It's, there's no there's nothing to even see. We said, we're walking there. So we got into wetsuits, and we started walking into the North Sea. And we just kept walking and walking and walking, and the, the, the water got deeper and deeper. And at some point, the water was up to our shoulders.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> and um, we are – it's sticky mud. It's actually really hard to, like, you know – uh, pu- pull your feet out of the mud because it's, uh, there's a lot of suction, and uh, we get to about that point. Now our, our backpacks are on our heads, and we're like, oh, well, we don't know where this is going. But you know, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. It's going to be a great story some, if we survive. We
0: survive, yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and and at that point, the water kind of leveled off and then as we were walking further it got it 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 started to get shallower again so what we had realized is we were we were doing what's called the mud walk which is a low tide walk that happens in this part of the north sea that can actually get you to some of the islands just off the shore of the netherlands and the island we were walking to was 11 kilometers away so we walked 11 kilometers through the north sea to an island during low tide, or what we thought was low tide, we don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to the other side, and there were people waiting there and welcoming us to think. And so, so my first impression was, holy moly, you know, I'm re- we're really in for a, a ride here, we're really in for a journey. Uh, so we get to the other side, we, 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 we disrobe from our, our, our wetsuits, we uh, shower, and then they put us in a uh, circle on the floor, so we're, we're, we're all sitting in a circle, and they said, we're going to call each one of you up one by one, the rest of you are going to have 29 index cards, uh, we want you to go up into the middle of the circle when your name is called, and for 30 seconds we would like you to greet everyone without saying anything, Nonverbal reading. And for the, the remaining 30 seconds, we'd like you to express why you're here. The rest of you in the circle with your index cards, you need to write what you're looking at. What are you seeing of this person? And we're not gonna tell you what we're doing with those cards afterwards. So again, the very first exercise after we get to the island is a little mysterious, it's extremely intense, it's deeply personal, it's, 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 it's intimidating, certainly a little bit out of my comfort zone. I tend to uh, take quite a long time to open up to people. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm again thinking to myself, I love these types of exercises. I like uh, walking into the unknown. I don't really like being put into these socially awkward positions. But I, I'm, I'm realizing these are learning experiences. These are edges that are being pushed. And this is probably going to continue throughout the entire learning journey of things. Um, uh, so that was the, really the second exercise. And then the rest of the weekend on this island kind of unfolded that way, where there were a lot of deeply intense personal um, uh, 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 interactions. Uh, we got to uh, connect with each other in a very deep way in a very short period of time. So there was a, a social engineering aspect that was just very, very cleverly designed into the, the program of the opening weekend. And again, back to sort of uh, uh, deconstructing it as, a, as an experienced designer, I realized that this was an extremely well-crafted uh, and, and well-orchestrated experience there was probably a run sheet in the background somewhere that was down to the minute. And uh, with sort of a box at the end saying, you know, this is the uh, this is the emotional output we want to get. This is the intellectual output we want to get. This is the physical output we want to get. You know, I was pretty sure that it was down to that level in terms of how, how well they thought through all these things. And that, I mean, that's really what convinced me that, I didn't think there was another school like this that existed in the world.
0: So you went on to uh, to co-found Think Canada. Yeah. And um, I'm really interested. It's it's the Think School of Creative Leadership, but it's right. not creative necessarily in the way that we understand creative. And what you just just described, of course, is a very creative. Approach to development. Um, what does the creative mean in in that sense?
1: It is very broad, um, and you're absolutely right that I mean the, the word creative, uh, the way it's been applied for the you know and the way that we all understand it tends to be uh, more based on output. So it's 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 people in the advertising marketing <laughs> industries. It's people in the arts. Um, but when, when we say creative leadership, we're, we're actually smashing those two words together and making sure that there's a, 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 an interrelationship between those two words. They're not, they're not extracted uh, from each other. They're really uh, uh, acting as almost a yin-yang uh, to influence each other. So for us, um, uh, creative is about using a very, very broad tool set to um, bring a different type of leadership to the world we see that 20th century was um, uh, let's say 20th century was really all about sort of the hierarchical uh, structure the command and control structure and as we started to pivot in the 21st century we started to see that that model was beginning to Uh, uh, not necessarily break down, but we were starting to see other models uh, emerging. And so when we talk about creative leadership, we are talking about uh, uh, breaking away from the old uh, hierarchical structures and breaking away from the same types of skill sets or mindsets, really, that were needed to lead enterprises in the 20th century. And um, um, that are required to lead enterprises in the 21st century.
0: What is different in the 21st century that means that we need this really different way of thinking about leadership?
1: Yeah, let's, so, so let's get into that. It's, it's a great, great opening question, and it's a really big one. Um, you know, if, if I look out into the world, my, my background, my educational background in university was um, geopolitics. So when I look out into the world, I'm seeing you know a, a world that's that's changing more rapidly, where um, certainties are being called into question, where our ability to solve big problems requires completely different team orientations, people from really much more diverse backgrounds working together. Um, that we have created as humans are getting more complex for us to solve. So it, again, it, it, it calls uh, a, a much, much, much broader uh, set of, of skills and mindsets uh, uh, together to, to help us solve these things. Um, and the, the gentle kind of politically sensitive estimates about our own impact on this living host of the planet that's keeping us alive, those politically sensitive and politically charged estimates are all being called into question as well. And we're starting to see kind of some of the limits of the growth that was sold to us as progress in the 20th century. We're starting to see that we're hitting some of those limits now. And in fact, that growth story that we were all living for in the 20th century, um, the growth related to progress is actually now starting to to potentially kill the the planet, the 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 living host. Um, this requires radically different thinking. We're no longer living in the period of unlimited growth, of um, exponential growth, and we're entering a new period where we realize that things are finite. Um, At the same time, uh, technology is advancing at such a stage that we're almost losing track of um, the impact that technology is having on our lives. So there are all of these sort of converging uncertainties that really require us to think very, very differently.
0: So what I'm hearing you saying, I think, is that there is this, this pace of change that is unprecedented at a time where it was growth in a way that was unprecedented in the 20th century, and that's what we got used to, fast growth. Um, Now, the pace of change is just as fast, if not faster, as the growth was, but the growth is not possible. So, and this is something that that I see in, in so many businesses where they're having to work harder and harder and harder and harder mm. on tighter and tighter margins with more and more efficiency to kind of squeeze out the, the kind of returns that would have been very easy to achieve 10, 15, 20 years ago. And, and it just doesn't seem possible now, but they haven't shifted their view about that. So if we look at the supermarkets, for instance, competing between themselves, lowering, lowering prices on milk and other products that the farmers just simply can't produce and make any money because we're right down to the bottom of right. what's possible.
1: And, you know, and, and for me, the, the, the thing that's, that's, um, that really bothers me, I have to say, is that there is evidence that there's a very, very thin layer of, uh, of people that are getting exponentially more wealthy off the, off the the back of the growth that is continuing to happen. So you have a layer of uh, sort of professional class and working class layers that are working harder and harder. Their spending dollars are going, uh, they're not going nearly as far as they did. And yet there's still a group of people that is benefiting from um, uh, everyone else working harder and harder. So there is huge cognitive dissonance as well um, with people who were promised some kind of a capitalist dream that if they worked hard uh, and if they saved a little bit of money, they would be fine and comfortable. And they're starting to see that that's not actually happening and that dream isn't actually translating for them. And they're looking for where in the system uh, things are broken. And they're starting to realize that uh, perhaps um, that very thin layer at, on the top um, are figuring out ways to capture all that value and uh, really bring that value to, to themselves uh, at the expense of, 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 of everyone else who's working very hard. So, you know, I, I'm sensing these things. I don't have any evidence, but I'm sensing these things. It is translating into what we're seeing with, with the election of Trump, what we saw with Brexit, um, it is that cognitive dissonance that's getting people to, to say, I don't even care if a, a schmuck gets in, I just, I just want something to break and change. And so calling into question the whole neoliberal order, and that's also converging with the awakening of, of us as humans Realizing that as we've exited the 20th century, we've started to shed, at least in the developed countries, we start to shed that connection between uh, um, the ownership of stuff and our sense of self and self worth. So that's now starting to happen as well, which is which is which is really interesting. If I get if I go out if I need a car, I go outside and I can have a car. It's not my car; it's parked right up front of my house, it's it's a car co-op, and I can go and I can take the car and use it, and then I, I park it and it's not my car anymore. And that is extremely uh, 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 efficient and a real symbol, signal of what could be to come. So what were some of the positive sort of payoffs of technology are. Um, with sharing, with sh- uh, you know, sharing economy, uh, self-driving cars could be very good for cities. It could actually make cities a lot quieter, more friendly to pedestrians and cyclists. So some of these things are are also going to be good. It's not all bad, but it, it does create a, a certain level of uncertainty. It does empty out certain industries. Uh, truck drivers will be out of business. Cab drivers will be out of business. Um, wh- what do they do next? Where you know? Yeah. Some, some weak signals, some weak signals, you know.
0: Yeah, and you can understand why it's terrifying for so many people and why one of the ways that I see what, what we're seeing at the moment in terms of trends is just a huge amount of fear and, and probably justified fear that the world as those people knew it, a lot of those people knew it, is it isn't just that they've closed the mines or something or that, that the car factory has moved to a different city those were very disruptive changes in the 80s and 90s but this is not that this is the world as they see it and and represented by people like you and me and by most politicians and by a lot of business leaders uh, new style business leaders is moving so fast and so far away from what they recognize so when we talk about collaborative economy or the circular economy or the sharing economy, all, the, all these kind of things, Silicon Valley, you know, the tech boom, or all these all these kind of concepts and the bike, which we'll come back to in a minute, it just it's so foreign to large parts of the Western world that they simply don't want it. So I was at a conference, moderating a conference a couple of weeks ago, Um, And someone came, uh, it was a panel that I was moderating about uh, the digital transformation program in this organization. And uh, someone in the audience asked, what did it have to do with them? Um, You know, what what difference was it going to make? And someone on the stage said, well, half of what you now do will be done by bots. But don't worry about it because there'll be plenty of other opportunities created for things that you can't currently do that will be enabled by the bots. Yeah. So they, they felt kind of reassured. And then afterwards, when I spoke to, um, to someone else uh, who, who was involved in this industry from the same company as the guy who'd spoken on stage, he said, it's not exactly like that. Half of these people will be out of work. They will be replaced by other people who do the stuff that the bots aren't doing, but it won't be these guys (laughs) because these Uh, guys don't have the skills. So they are they are right to be terrified.
1: Yeah, these are these are huge, you know, major human issues. I think you know at least the gift of the industrial revolution was to give a a much broader spectrum of the population some kind of purpose. Uh, and a little bit of meaning in their lives. We go to work because we believe that work is going to lead us to a better day. There is progress. We could save up a little bit and send our kids to school. Th- the kids are going to have a better li- life than ours. We're working in the you know coal mines, but our kids are going to go to you know trade school and learn a trade that they don't have to work in the coal mine. There was some you know positive progress that was associated with the industrial revolution. But all of those things are starting to dissolve and fray in front of us, almost, almost in real time. And there's no doubt that it's causing a huge amount of stress and uncertainty for uh, for people everywhere.
0: So you, um, God, I'm loving this conversation. So, <laughs> so you, in addition to your work with Think, you've now become part of a movement to to create. I mean, maybe you can explain where it came from, but basically, bicycle mares in in every major city in the world. I mean, where? How do you go from you? You're at Think, you're co-founding Think, you set up Think uh, Canada, and then the bike.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, it's 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 actually quite a dramatic life story. It's a very very dramatic life story. So, uh, but I want to get into it because I think it's 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 absolutely a huge part of who I am, and it's the main major major ingredient in who I am. So, you know, here I am on the journey to start this incredible school in Canada. Move, move, I, I'm there every other month in 2013 and 2014 decide to move the family there in 2014. So, pick, bundle up the kids, get them into schools there, find a place to live, we move there. We're there, start, uh, summer of, uh, of of 2014, we arrive. Three days before we leave Europe to arrive in Canada, my brother dies. And it's a huge, shock to the family. Uh, he, he was um, doing something that he loved dearly, which was paragliding. It's not a safe sport. He, took, he, he was taking a risk doing this sport um, uh, and, and he had an accident. Um, it was uh, massively devastating for, for the family. Uh, and that was our arrival in Canada for me to kind of spend six months setting up things. So we had to say goodbye to my brother as the first part of the summer. And then I got into the groove of, 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 of working, at think, uh, the home, the, this incredible space was being designed and set up. And we were now uh, into December. We were launching in January. And December 4th, a couple of weeks before launching, I get a call. And my mother and my stepdad were in an accident in Rome. Uh, I had to drop everything I was doing and go to Rome and uh, um, um, walk into a situation that was, was actually quite shocking. And um, uh, uh, that really uh, um, um, uh, changed my perspective about almost everything um, uh, in so many different ways. I mean, one of the things that Think teaches you to do is reframe, a lot of reframing. And at first I thought, okay, it's, a, it's an intellectual tool and you know, Henry Kissinger is the master of reframing geopolitics and making himself seem like a hero when he could be a war criminal and reframing is an intellectual exercise that we just use to trick ourselves into thinking that we're much better than we actually are. Anyway, that was my very cynical approach to reframing. But as I started to deal with the passing of my stepdad and my mom, I started to see all sorts of very, very weird aspects of life that I'd never seen before. And the first one was, you know, for everyone around my mom who, you know, just developed and cultivated these incredibly close, dear relationships with so many friends. She had such an incredible network of friends and family um they all saw this as a terrible tragedy she passes away at 70 she's in great health you know she looks good she looks young she she actually she she comes across as much younger than she actually is everyone i'm spending the last couple of days of her life with her she was in a coma from this accident in rome and i'm seeing things very differently first of all in rome Rome's been dealing with life and death and everything in between for thousands and thousands of years. Rome is an incredible place for someone to actually have an end of life experience because Rome knows how to comfort the, the, the survivors. It just knows how to comfort. Did someone come up to me and sit with? No. It's just the whole city is, it's called the Eternal City because uh, it's dealt with this rhythm of life for thousands of years so being in rome with my mother as she was passing away was already an incredibly comforting experience it sounds strange but i I can't describe it any other way this the, the next thing that happened was just the processing of the loss of my mother that there were emotions inside of me that i didn't even know i had there were this, these almost mammalian, like a mammal losing its mother. It, it, it got to that almost cosmic level of connection with, with all of life when I realized that I was losing my mother. These, all of these doors of perception started opening to me as she was laying there, passing from this world to the next you know as her friend as i was trying to comfort her friends and and let her know about all this it occurred to me that there's no possible way she could have have designed a better more positive way of passing away i mean she wasn't getting older and sicker she went to sleep one night in rome it was the first night that she had, she had just arrived with the man that she loved looking for forward to her next week in Rome. And that's how she went. She just fell asleep and she didn't wake up. She would have absolutely 100% wanted that type of passing. And she got it. I mean, to me, it's unbelievable. And and she wouldn't want to be a burden on any of us. I mean, you know, now we're getting into stuff that's like deeply personal, but all of these were ingredients that kind of helped me in the next phase of, of my life and my career, ultimately we had to say goodbye to my, my mom mum, uh, and and her her funeral was 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 just before the end of the year. I brought my family back to Amsterdam, and then I flew directly back to Vancouver to open uh, Think, and we had a, a great opening, uh, great first group of people opening weekend, similar to how I described the mud walk in uh, Amsterdam. We had a fantastic adventure and journey for for the participants and all of through all of this I had this 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 extra unmet feeling unfulfilled desire and it was this in my heart I had something else that that I really needed to get out and that was cycle space and you know cycle space is uh, uh, came from me first arriving in Amsterdam and looking around, saying, "This is different." As I mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation, this is different. And looking at the, the way that people moved through the city, how people just serendipitously bumped into each other because they were all on bikes, um, uh, how people were whistling, you know, while they were on a bike or singing, you know, this was a truly happy city. And I had never experienced this before in Montreal growing up or in Vancouver, where I spent my my adult years, you know, I'd be in the car and I'd mostly be miserable in the car. Yeah. From time to time I'd sing with the radio, but most of the time I was in traffic and needing to get somewhere and always stuck. And in Amsterdam, I didn't see any of that. I just saw everyone moving very fluidly through the city and Circumventing cars and traffic, and just this incredible flow. And I thought to myself, this, "This is happiness. This isn't. This isn't just personal happiness of me finding the city and the vibe that I wanted to to, to live in. But that vibe is directly a cause of how people are so free and how they move around. And that freedom is directly connected to the bicycle." So this is what I started to piece together. And as I started to ride, I started to realize this is a happiness machine. This is making me very, very happy. And the reason it's making me happy is a bit more complex. It's making me happy because I'm realizing that I don't need an expense. I don't need expensive stuff to be happy. I don't, and it really started with replacing the car. This is getting me from A to B in a much much easier more fluid way. It's giving me a little bit of a, a, a endorphin boost because I'm getting some exercise. It's getting me on the street connected to other human beings in the city. Um, it's allowing me to think um, and not be just so tense about being in traffic. And so I just it just occurred to me this is a happiness machine. And how do we tell the world about that and cycle space is my way of telling the world that the bicycle is a key to a happier healthier uh, 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 city uh, citizen and planet that's ultimately what the bicycle is going to bring it, it hasn't reached its full potential yet it's almost a 200 year old invention it is going to act as a counterpoint to all of the modern technology that promises so much in terms of freedom in terms of you know time saving but actually doesn't deliver any of that in fact probably does the opposite the bicycle is the counterpoint to all of that and this these are the stories these are the philosophies that i'm starting to create and build and it all really started when when my mother died i said you know you can go at any time fast forward to 2016 and the city of amsterdam realized that they were sitting on a gold mine in terms of positioning as a bicycle centric city however they also realized that they lost so much momentum and so much uh, um, um, equity by not actually doing anything to claim that leadership spot. Whereas Copenhagen spends a lot of money and a lot of time uh, uh, and a lot of storytelling, trying to position themselves as bicycle capital. Now, what that tells me with Copenhagen is that they realize something that Amsterdam hadn't realized, which is, Cycling brings so many economic benefits. Some of them very, very obvious. You know, whether it's uh, you know not not so much spending on expensive road infrastructure or health you know health benefits in terms of slimmer, more healthy people. Um, um, but then it it you know then it, it gets into more uh, a deeper 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 and deeper levels of benefits that are a little bit more invisible and under the surface. You know, these bike cities are becoming much more desirable places for people to go visit and hang out in. They're quieter. People could walk down the street and have a conversation at a normal volume and not yell over each other's voices and over the, the, you know, the din of traffic. Uh, People who get on bikes, as I was mentioning before, start to, it's almost like a gateway drug to thinking about what else they may not, what else could they give up? I've given up my car. What what else What else is sort of a, a drag on my happiness? Um, so it's it's almost a gateway drug to think about consumption in a very 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 different way. So these are some of the underlying benefits, the ones that aren't perfectly visible and can't necessarily be tra- translated into into pure dollars. But then it goes even further because you know if if if, if you are uh, if if happiness is uh, triggered by being on a bicycle, then mental health is affected. If um, uh, commute times are, are are affected, where you're cutting your commute time in half because you're actually able to move through the city much more efficiently, then again, it, it, that's related to happiness as well. Um, people who are stuck in long commutes are, are very, very unhappy, and this has been proven out through a lot of research and data. So all of these things start to merge together into a very epic story about the impact of the bicycle on the future.
0: So your vision, I mean, it's so interesting to think about the bike, the humble bicycle. which a humble bicycle. 200 years old, 200 year old mode of transport has this really modern, world changing piece of technology yeah and as with everything with you um pretty much uh, it's a big vision that that you have right this isn't about um you know a few extra cycle paths and and giving amsterdam a bigger name in terms of a bicycle city maybe you can describe the the vision that you
1: have yeah so what i see in the world of cycling is that there are some governing bodies um uh, that have put out certain studies and statistics that start to estimate what a good news scenario is for people shifting to bicycles in cities between now and the year 2050 they call it the high shift scenario the high shift scenario basically says if we can get 23% of all trips in cities worldwide as as bicycle trips then we could uh, we could offset 11% of all carbon emissions, this is by 2050, 11% of all carbon emissions and put $25 trillion back into the hands of the public and, and governments so that they could spend it on more, uh, on more enlightened programs, let's say. Now, I take a look at that goal, and the first, uh, the first glance that I had at that vision was, wow. So I was actually very inspired by it. But as I started to think a little bit more about what kind of impact that's going to have, and as I started to learn more about what, how, climate, how climate scientists have been, in a way, compromised or compromising their own research because they've been influenced by even larger powers, the climate scientists, the, the ones that have spoken out, are basically saying all the predictions that we've made and the estimates that we've made, we made, we, we really, really underestimated how severe the situation is. So if I take the underestimation of the severity of what we're experiencing right now as climate change, and I take the under, underestimation of the impact of the bicycle, and the very, very modest goal and the very modest timeline that was put forward by the these governing bodies of, of cycling, I say to myself, forget that. That's it's 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 it, there's no urgency. There's no big moonshot that we need now. Not by 2050. Someone's going to have to do something about it. The the big bicycle bodies aren't doing anything about it. They're basically playing nice with the petroleum auto complex and saying yeah let's uh, let's work on this together and let's manage this change over the next couple of decades that's bullshit that's too late it's just too late so what i'm saying is and this is where the big sort of idea comes in is the cycle space is creating a completely new language a completely new set of goals and a completely new time frame for this change to happen. We're going to be—I don't—I can't—I can't release the details right now because it's still in process. But I can tell you that we're getting—we're getting very close. And to drive these goals, we have this Bicycle Mayor program. And the Bicycle Mayor program is basically a person—a human face of cycling in every city who will represent and push for these new goals in cities worldwide we wanted to start in the bicycle capital of the world because we knew that if we did something here that that shot would be heard around the world so we said let's do it in amsterdam i mean i live here so it's easy um i know the city players i know the uh the the influencers in the world of, of cycling in amsterdam And you know, we set up Cycle Space. We started to work with the city to help them promote themselves as a bicycle capital. And we realized that they needed something much bigger than what they were asking for. And this is really where the bicycle mayor program came from. So we 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 went back to them. We said, "Hey, we're going to do this bicycle mayor." They're like, "We don't like it." (laughs) (laughs) And we're like, "We're going to do it." (laughs) And so we did it. And now they love it. We tapped into something very deep and very powerful, which was people had forgotten how special it was. And so when we launched this, it totally reengaged and reignited people's love for the bicycle. Because what we were, what we were telling them as well is that the numbers of, 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 of bicycle users on a daily basis was starting to actually plateau. And in some parts of the city, even drop. And this actually started to wake people up, uh, started to to get them aware that they can't just take the bicycle for granted, that other forms of transport, specifically the self-driving car, will try very, very hard to elbow and push and coerce and uh, persuade their way into the cityscape and we, ha- we can't let that happen. Of course, it's okay for to have self driving cars in the city center, but we can't let that take over the public discourse about who owns the city and what the city is for and, and how people feel uh, free and, and a sense of ownership of the city. And, and the person who ended up being the bicycle mayor is absolutely fantastic. She's a, a super bright young woman, uh, she 's in the bicycle industry so she 's in she she comes from from that world um, and she knows how to carry herself as someone who is non aligned but who's really interested in bringing together all of these multitudes of stakeholders to create something that 's that 's uh, much better than the sum of its parts if I could just take a couple of steps back because I, I i think that one of the connections that would be great to make for for you and your audience would be like how does creative leadership translate into this these ideas right
0: because so, I'm listening to you tell your stories and and there is something that in fact you mentioned the word yourself. There is something for me about your instincts and your hmm. listening to little little notices get um, that tell you something, whether it's something that's just triggered by what's in the environment, like like your awareness um, that led you to create Last Radius or your awareness that led you to think that getting involved with Think was the right thing to do, not just for you, but kind of the right thing happening in the world at the time. Um, and your personal circumstances, which then led to this kind of revelation about big life revelation, which then made cycle space possible. So there's something definitely for me about your, your noticing the yeah. instinctive and um, smells that, that yeah, you're it's, it's,
1: it's tuning in, tuning into those weak signals yeah. and then following one. And and seeing where it takes me. So, you know, that is certainly, I think that's a very, very important ingredient of creative leadership, which is walking. I mean, we started the the story, you know, uh, earlier uh, talking about walking into the unknown and having the trust in your instinct to walk into this unknown, not knowing where you're going to end up, um, but knowing but, but but you know it's right when you find it. You know that that there's, you're going to find something out there that's right. You don't know what it is yet. You're, you're taking each step out into the unknown. It's becoming clearer and clearer as you're walking. Um, and you're trusting your instinct. You're trusting the people around you as well. You're, you're not afraid to look like... You're not afraid to get it wrong. I think that's a really important thing, right? You're not afraid to get something wrong. I think that's where a lot of people trip up is that they just, they, 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 just, they feel like they have to come across as certain as gotta have all the answers. This is my path to success. Gotta look really confident and sure. And I think, the, I think allowing the vulnerability to enter and and, and admitting the vulnerability is actually a huge strength It's it's saying, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I'm going to try something now. I'd have no idea if this is going to go anywhere, but I'm going to give it a try and be be, having that like just curiosity and humbleness to try these things. These are words that did not appear in the lexicon of 20th century leadership
0: all of that is so relevant I think because that is something that you can translate into any environment that you find yourself in where you where you could lead you know where there is an opportunity to take some leadership and leadership not so much being about in fact nothing that you've said there is about people skills in in the traditional sense about Persuading people to follow you and right. you uh, get people inspired. It's much more about your own inner development and your inner sort of self-awareness. Um, and and there's another piece which you, you which I very much associate with what you've done or the journey that you've described, which is to do with patience. Because there's also in addition to this need to be right, there's this need to get results really quickly for mm. the idea to be right fast
1: yeah um no doubt uh, you know in my previous world in blast radius there was certainly that you know uh, taking a step, there was there was a patience it, it's almost like i do think that there's a very interesting interplay between the patience and the urgency because
0: mm-hmm.
1: urgency is also important urgency is what kind of creates a certain fire under your ass there's, so there's a fire in the belly there's a fire under your ass to like, get things done right yeah i think you, i think it's it's the it's the ebb and flow that it the balancing of those two things if if you go too slowly i don't think you get the kind of momentum that you need to create the escape velocity to uh, create a, a workable enterprise so then the gift and the patience and the is all lost in the sands of time so you do need the combination so i i i i i, I I would say there is a certain amount of patience, but when, I think what it is, is when th- something really sticks, when you've hit it, when you've really hit it in terms of an idea, then you go hard, then you go hard. The idea actually starts to drive you. You're no longer having to kind of push it forward and try different things. The idea just takes on a life of its own and then it's moving and you're on a fast moving, you know, you're on a really fast moving uh, rocket. And, and that's that, that energy that you have created, that starts to carry you.
0: And and just a final question um, to you. Do, do you think that what you're talking about, this, this style of creative leadership and the, the way that you think about the world, do you think that that is something that we can all access? Or do you think that you have a special... There are a few people that have a special innate ability at that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think I really, pr- I really pride myself on trying to be as normal and human and totally unspecial as possible. For me, the real disruption is that any anyone. It, at least this is this is how I feel i I may be wrong I may be completely wrong but i I hope and I really think that anyone can do this i I don't feel special or gifted I feel like i've tapped into something like that I, I love which is a gift potentially but i'm not a, i'm not a, a massively gifted uh, you know in, in, I don't have a high iq uh, I don't have a, 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 a you know, some kind of a cosmic vision, like a Stephen Hawking. Um, I'm just, I'm just an average guy who has a, who's had a couple of moments of deep, deep clarity about myself. And, and, and that's it. I I, not much more, not much more. I've had a couple of, of moments of deep clarity and it's in those moments where I know exactly what, makes me happy. And I know that what makes me happy is not necessarily the pursuit of happiness. I know that for sure. And so I, I and, and when I'm on a bike with my kids and my wife and we're riding through the countryside, when I look at this family in motion, that is my moment. That is my, I think that's my moment of clarity where I'm like, this is what matters. Right here right now, this is what makes me really, really happy. And do I need to make a shitload of money? No, I have been lucky. And I've been very, very lucky, I have to say, I've been fortunate. but, but faced with and, and this is, you know, maybe the final, let's say, confession uh, faced with uh, uh, also a huge loss of, 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 of money. Uh, huge uh, investments going wrong. I mean, I've just made terrible, terrible mistakes. I'm not good with money. But when I'm on my bike with my family and I'm looking at them and we're smiling and singing and moving through the countryside, I'm like, I just don't need very much to be happy. This I need this. I need some purpose, which is what we talked about before with CycleSpace and with Think. And that's it. That's really it. So I think there's a, a huge freedom that's associated with getting to that, that level of, of, of insight and clarity.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a, a really inspiring place to, to end because I think that that is something that is accessible instantaneously. It, it, it doesn't take years of work no um, you know at a job you hate or a million no. to do. it, it, you, it, doesn't, it doesn't even uh, take it, it, it yeah it doesn't even
1: take think i mean you, you don't you wouldn't have to go to a, a pricey uh, uh, uh executive leadership program or uh a, 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 do a lifelong learning journey to get to those things i think what you've honed in on with me and I'm glad that you helped me recognize this, was you you, you made it very, very clear. I, I have an instinct that I tune into certain signals. And that signal of this is what makes me happy and being able to then connect that to kind of the story of my life and the story of the ownership of stuff versus just experiencing Incredible things with people you love. Just, just connecting all that together in that moment, and 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 saying that's an important moment to tune into. That's that's anyone could do that. Any it's it that's it's it's not a skill that you have to learn at school or anything. But there is a I think there is a gift to be able to identify those those insights and moments, and be able to make that kind of cosmic connection back to life the universe and everything as douglas adams would say
0: lee thank you so much for talking to me i'm i'm gonna have a hell of a job editing this
1: (laughs) yes you are
0: (laughs) just make it like a two-hour podcast make
1: it a two-hour special (laughs) absolutely
0: yeah listen on your commute to work one morning exactly exactly and
1: and if you don't like it then we'll get carl pilkington in next time to do some crazy stuff (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) that round-headed man well yeah i'm not
1: too far just today i'm not too far away from that
0: (laughs) well lee thank you so much and um it's really a pleasure yeah it was a huge pleasure to me too thank you so that's it i hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as i enjoyed actually speaking to lee i really love that down to earth no mystique passion-driven approach that someone like Lee brings to his work but also his life and the the message of simplicity which I think when we look at our lives and we see how burdened we are by our massive mortgages and by our car payments and by the fancy holidays that we insist on having and the shopping trips every weekend uh, when, when we experience that heavy burden and then hear about the freedom Of getting you and your family on a bike and living in a city where you can get from place to place in that way. There's something hugely attractive about that. You can find out more about CycleSpace by going to cyclespace.nl Uh, because it's Netherlands-based, so that's cyclespace.nl. You can also find out more about Think if you're interested in that program by going to think.org, and that's t-h-n-k.org. And to find out more about the work that I do and how you can stay in touch with me and the team at That People Thing, here's the lovely Ivy Palmer. We now have a Facebook page where you can get information about the podcast, links to other articles and experts, and connect with like-minded people. Just search Pumps in Suits and like our page. Of course, you can also follow Mummy on Twitter at Blair Palmer, Instagram at Blair Lees Palmer, or email her, Blair at thatpeoplething.org. But most importantly, we want people to be able to find out about the podcast and you can help with that. Please share the iTunes link on social media. Leadership is changing fast and with your help, more people will discover how to make a difference and create organisations that are a
1: force for good in the world.